The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is the digital economy. President Jokowi increasingly highlights technology and the digital economy as central to Indonesia's future quipping during one of this year's presidential election debates, in the future, strong countries won't control weak countries, fast countries will control slow countries. And in line with this focus, digital startups such as ride-hailing company Gojek or e-commerce platform Bukalapak have become some of Indonesia's best-known companies. But at the same time, we've seen concerns about the potential divisive and disruptive effects as so much more of society's day-to-day activities and interaction are conducted online with government regulations often seemingly playing catch-up to each new development in the digital sphere. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Putri Alam, Head of Government Affairs and Public Policy at Google Indonesia, who spoke earlier this year at the Indonesia Development Forum in Jakarta on the digital economy and the shifting nature of work in Indonesia. And today's episode is the latest in the Policy and Focus series of Talkie Indonesia episodes, supported by the Knowledge Sector Initiative, or KSI, a partnership between the Australian and Indonesian governments that aims to improve the use of evidence in development policy making. Ibu Putri, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to have you on Talkie Indonesia. Now, could I start by asking you, when we talk about terms like the digital economy or digital exports, digital imports, uh, what precisely does that mean? So thank you for that question. I think digital economy, if you ask um, several people, they will all give you different definitions. So there's not really a standard term or definition on what the digital economy is um, about. Some may label it as internet economy. Some may label it as platform economy. Um, this is the most used term. It would be a sharing economy. But in essence, it's the amount of production, consumption, and investment that make up the economy that are driven by digital technologies, such as the internet, uh, mobile phones, and apps. Digital exports and imports, on the other hand, are measures of the size of goods and services traded between countries as a result of these new economic activities. And as we see more and more digital innovation penetrating the economy, we will reach a time where it's going to be simply just the economy. So when you refer to economy, then it automatically means the digital economy. And the whole economic sectors are now digitizing. Um, You know, we're embracing more of digital innovation as part of its core products and services. And thus, it's only a matter of time before digital becomes an integrated part of the economy. And there's no such thing anymore as a traditional versus digital economy. How close are we to that day in Indonesia where digital economy would essentially be equivalent to the economy as a whole? I think we would probably say about five years away. In our own Google Tamasek study, we predicted it to be $100 billion in five years, but we keep on revising that. Uh, This year, just a quick preview, we will um, revise that number to something higher again. So I think it's within a matter of a few years from now. So a hundred billion or more in five years. But at the moment, how big is the digital economy in Indonesia and how would it compare to other countries in the region? Right. So uh, we recently commissioned a study by INDEF to specifically measure this, and it amounts to about $56.4 billion in 2018. 
Uh, this figure comes from direct and indirect contribution of digital technologies to the economy. In essence, it accounts for about 5.5% of Indonesia's GDP. But due to uh, different methodologies and assumptions, it's a bit difficult to compare between countries. But I think a lot of studies out there, as I mentioned, McKinsey already done their uh, studies as well as us, Google Tamasek. I think everyone is pretty much aligned uh, the same page that Indonesia right now is already the biggest digital economy in Southeast Asia. And it's continued to poise to be like that for the next five years. And is that simply because of Indonesia's large population that its digital economy is the largest in Southeast Asia? Or are there other factors that give a country comparative advantages uh, in the development of a digital economy? Right. Population certainly is a positive driver. It certainly has a lot of uh, sway into that because, for example, apps like Gojek, you know, companies like Gojek, why are they able to succeed? Is because they're able to scale within our own market, right? We have 250 million people and um, you have people with common everyday challenges that Gojek is able to solve. So population definitely helps, but it's not all, of course. You know, in contrast to the traditional economy, a success in digital economy is more dependent upon data-driven innovation rather than the traditional production factors such as land, manpower, machines, or capital. When you say data-driven innovation, what exactly do you mean? Uh, what would be an example of that? Right. So data-driven innovation means innovation that is based upon data that is aggregated, collected aggregatedly. So you can define what are the users interested in, what are the users' challenges are, what are the users' behavior. So it's really a consumer-focused innovation. Sounds uh, a bit like the sort of business that Google is engaged in. Yes. Indeed. Now, you've mentioned Gojek already, and you know we often hear President Jokowi speak of, I think, is it four tech unicorns that Indonesia has, these tech startups that have, what is it, a market value of more than a billion dollars. How important to Indonesia is it that it has these homegrown companies and that its tech sector is not simply constituted of overseas multinationals? So Gojek and all the other Indonesian unicorns are great examples to showcase how Indonesians can compete with global tech companies. In other words, it shows that any digital companies like Gojek can be the next Google or Amazon, regardless which country they're from. So from an Indonesian perspective, it's not just about making as many Gojeks or whether it's Gojeks versus Google or, you know, uh, it's not about, you know, how many MNCs um, are allowed to uh, operate in Indonesia. Instead, Indonesia needs to provide the appropriate regulatory framework that would allow traditional businesses to embrace digital technologies as much as the digital native companies like Gojek and others do. I'll give you an example of Bluebird. When Gojek first appeared in Indonesia, it was really, um, you know, a war between those two. Sorry, Bluebird being the traditional leader in the taxi market in Indonesia before Gojek's emergence. Exactly, exactly. But what has happened is now, instead of the government succumb to pressure by these traditional companies, by shutting down companies and innovations like Gojek, the government made it a level playing field. And therefore now Bluebird created its own app that is, you know, I would say not any less valuable than what Gojek has invented. So we have to create an environment that traditional um, companies can also embrace uh, the change of pace in technology. You know, so the race is not between unicorns versus MNCs. 
It's making sure that, you know, everyone is equipped for the new industrial era. They simply cannot back to the non-digital era. And what might that environment look like? I think a good regulatory environment would be important. In an essence area like digital economy, almost every innovation we see is unprecedented in the sense that there is not yet a proper guiding regulatory framework for that innovation when it enters public. Again, you know, going back to the Gojek story. Therefore, the government's policy environment is central in terms whether you're going to make it or break it for the economy. So the best way to create a level playing field is to allow the incumbents to catch up instead of putting the brakes on the innovations. And of course, the government needs to address other concerns such as security, privacy, and consumer protection. But these objectives can be achieved without compromising innovation. When you talk about a level playing field not being the answer to this competition between new companies and established players, uh, the complaint of the established players is typically that a company like Gojek is not paying the same fees is not providing the same protections uh, to its drivers as what a traditional company is required to. Um, Is there a role for the government in seeing that not only consumer rights, but worker rights are protected when these new digital players come into the marketplace? I think uh, the government regulating it more is not the answer. In fact, it has to be the opposite. You need to deregulate, you know, reduce bureaucracy and licensing regime. And then let the market decide, because, again, it's kind of like the survival of the fittest as well, right, with these innovations. We all have to um, think about what will benefit the users and what will benefit the consumers. Now, when you talk about companies like Gojek um, that have obviously been able to attract a great deal of investment and compete very effectively with traditional players uh, like Bluebird and other traditional transport providers. Um, In doing this, are these companies at present actually turning a profit? I guess if we look at the startups and unicorns in Indonesia, um, their end goal is to have a return on investment, right? And these investments initially were generally put in to help them build their products, expand their markets, and sustain growth. So in a day-to-day basis, the money can be spent on research and development, product testing, employee hiring, uh, marketing campaigns. So similar to early stage of growth for any type of companies, there are certain periods where companies do not yet book a profit and focus on exploration, research and development, and market growth instead. So tech companies rely a lot on IP and uh, research and development investment before they can turn to profit for a long time. Sure. Now, returning to this question of the role of government, you've spoken of creating space for innovation so that traditional players can catch up. Is the role of government simply in regulation or or are there investments that uh, you'd like to see, say, an Indonesian government make to support the growth of the digital economy? I think the role in the government is more on just the regulation. In fact, um, take, for example, here, the Ministry of Communication Informatics, or Cominfo, they have been a facilitator as well. It's very important to have government to just stop, think of just simply enacting regulations and bureaucracy. But as Minister Rudi Antara himself would say, Stop thinking about outside the box. What if there's no box at all? You know, we like that kind of view because you need to move on. As technology grows, as innovation grows, the role of government should also 
grows from regulators to facilitators to accelerator. So I think that's key. Now, you've mentioned that you keep revising upwards your estimates of how large the digital economy is likely to be in Indonesia in five years. So obviously a lot is going right in its development. But are there particular barriers that the development of the digital economy faces in Indonesia at present? Yes, we mentioned about government policy already. The second one would be infrastructure and then talent. So with regards to um, government policy, you know, laws and regulations around data localization, for example, Cybersecurity, there's a cybersecurity bill that's going on in the parliament right now that, you know, gives very broad power to the newly established National Cybersecurity Agency to monitor everything, including like content on the Internet. That's a bit worrying. Um, Personal data protection, of course, that's very key. Um, You know, you need to build consumer trust based on, you know, good regulatory framework. So taxation, of course, and I mentioned online content. These regulations, they make a significant barrier for innovation to thrive. And um, I mentioned about infrastructure. It's still a challenge, especially for companies like Indonesia, where we are basically, you know, an archipelago. Last, but definitely not least, in fact, if I can rank them, this would probably be number one, is talent. There's just not enough talent um, in the country for us to reach the digital economy. Minister Rudiantara mentioned this already many, many times that the digital talent gap for Indonesia is 600,000 per year. That's a very staggering number. But I think the problem here is it's not just numbers, but when you think of Indonesia challenging talent or skills, it is from upstream to downstream. When you talk about 600,000 digital talent, then you automatically think about, you know, fresh college graduates or developers. But that's just downstream. We also need to tackle the uh, issue of upstream problem, which is K-12, basic computational thinking for our students. As you've heard you know, many times before, the skills of the 21st century involves higher order of uh, problem-solving skills, logical thinking, creative thinking. And this is definitely what is lacking in our school system today. It sounds like, at least in part, you're proposing some sort of curriculum changes in elementary and secondary schooling. But overall, is this talent challenge something for the government to address? Or is it, as you've kind of proposed with the larger sector, something that the market will play a large role in addressing over time? Absolutely. I don't think the government can do it alone. And we were quite encouraged when President Jokowi during his election campaign, as well as his kind of like state of the nation address at the parliament a month ago, you know, made this a priority. And he also acknowledged that he cannot, the government cannot do it alone. So it's also up to us, companies like Google and others, as well as universities, academics, you know, it takes a village basically to crack this problem. What is Google doing in this area at the moment in Indonesia? We are doing several things. In terms of scaling, we have a few target audiences. We have scaling for SMBs, small and medium businesses, teach them to get online and online presence. Um, And within that, we also have women empowerment scaling, uh, leadership skills, communication skills. 
And then our second target audience would be developers. Um, in 2016, when President Jokowi visited our headquarter and met our CEO, Sundar Pichai, our CEO committed 100,000 developers, Indonesian developers, to be trained by 2020. And in December 2018, we were very happy to announce that we reached that number and beyond. We already trained 110,000 developers in 2018. And then our third target audience uh, would be K-12, as I mentioned. Uh, we're now doing a pilot program of train the trainers or train the teachers more appropriately so that teachers can teach computational thinking to K-12 students. We also train journalists to do uh, fact checks so they can report quality content. We're also uh, skilling YouTube creators so that they create more positive content on YouTube. We're doing a lot in skilling. With this talent gap, what impact does that have for the benefits that Indonesia as a nation, as a society, draws from the development of the digital economy? Is it, is it a significant constraint? on those benefits being felt broadly across society? It certainly is. You know, unicorns and startups, they have these innovative ideas, but if they don't have the talent to actually execute these ideas, then, you know, they're not going to be able to take off. I mean, you hear about also Gojek, again, we we have to use Gojek as an example. You know, they have to go to India to uh, fulfill their talent need, you know. Also, MNCs like us, you know, when we want to expand our business, we are in a talent war, not just with fellow MNCs, but also, as I mentioned, you know, to the startups and uh, unicorns. So definitely it's um, non-beneficial to any of us. Beyond that talent problem, you've mentioned some of the far-reaching cyber powers that the government may grant itself through this draft uh, cybersecurity legislation. Um, we've also seen a couple of instances of late of the Indonesian government first slowing down the internet during the unrest following the announcement of the, ele- the national election result in Jakarta and then cutting it off altogether for a couple of weeks in Papua of late. Um, when a government interferes with the operation of the internet like we've seen in those cases, does that have an effect on the digital economy and its development? Yes, for sure. But I cannot comment specifically on the government action as perhaps this is their prerogative and we don't have a full information on the actual situation and the issue that the government is facing. But for sure, this is definitely run against our true mission, which is making the world's information to be universally accessible for everyone. And it also all these skillings or literacy training, it goes to waste, right? Why would you train people how to surf online safely if the access of the internet is being blocked anyway? And it actually does not solve the real problem of those hoaxes or fake news or whatever it is that they are afraid of or uh, intimidated of. You know, instead of blocking access, we need to work together and everyone, I'm saying here, not just uh, companies, we have to hand in hand work with the government to increase digital literacy. I think that would be more effective than blocking internet access. I see. Now, obviously, economic growth is a massive priority for the Indonesian government, for any Indonesian government. And we have seen, with the exception of the financial crisis of the late 90s, really uninterrupted economic growth for the best part of six decades in Indonesia. But I mean, across that period, 
um, we've consistently heard from economists that Indonesia's growth has not been inclusive growth. The economy has not been generating enough jobs for the number of people coming into the labour force. Um, Where does the digital economy sit in that regard? I mean, you've already mentioned that many Indonesians do not have the skills required to enter the digital economy, to to fill the sorts of jobs that are being created. Um, Is it something that will disproportionately provide opportunities to wealthier, better educated Indonesians, or or is it something that can have have a broader benefit? Actually, again, from our in-depth report that I mentioned to you earlier, it's proven that the digital economy actually improved the state of inclusive growth. So from that report, we saw that the digital economy has more and more benefited women and people in eastern Indonesia. So, for example, like the number of women sellers are growing steadily, about 38% in 2018. And we see more participation in the digital economy from 40% poorest population in Indonesia. So to a certain extent, wealthier Indonesians um, might be true that they're perceived to be benefiting more from the poor population because of their higher digital literacy uh, level that they have. But, you know, I think that's also another reason why it's important to ensure everyone has at least basic digital literacy skills. But in essence, the digital economy is actually democratizing development, Um, So it's not exclusive just to the wealthy Indonesians. Presumably, people in eastern Indonesia engaged in petty trade would be participating in quite a different way in the digital economy to educated workers in Jakarta or other large cities, wouldn't they? Right. So that's why it is important for us to ensure infrastructure, especially in rural and remote Indonesia, including eastern Indonesia, has internet access so we can further democratise this uh, digital economy development to those people in the area. Sure. Now, you've spoken, uh, you know, using the example of Gojek, about the disruption that that caused to the transport market in Jakarta and other large cities in Indonesia. And, you know, you've spoken of how Bluebird in particular was forced to innovate to maintain its position in that market. Um, What other sectors of the economy are we most likely to see that sort of disruption for in the near term and and how do you see that playing out? We see fintech, financial services technology has been significantly dubbed as a sector that is going to see major transformation. And this is simply because it has traditionally been uh, highly regulated and therefore lacking 10 to 20 years behind in terms of technological innovation. So it's currently the time of change in the economy. There will eventually be a new and balanced ecosystem as a result of the so-called disruption. So new business models will become more familiar and therefore allow new forms of partnerships and consolidation in the economy. Does this necessarily expand the economy in each of these sectors? Using an Australian example, you know, we've seen media companies complain that essentially their profits have shifted to... Google and Facebook, companies that are not content producers. Um, We've seen restaurants complain that delivery platforms are eating into their revenue rather than significantly expanding it. Is there a challenge there in making sure that the economy does expand in these sectors and and you don't simply have uh, sort of disruptions that don't produce an expansion of available services? I think, you know, if anything, digital democratize all sectors of the economy. 
you know, I don't think we want to inhibit that at all. Like I mentioned, financial tech services companies right now, you know, um, like the traditional banks, you know, they are forced to re-innovate themselves, right? The way they serve their customers, because people now can open a bank account without going to the brick and mortar banks. This forced banks to re-innovate themselves and competing head on with these, you know, startups like even Gojek. They have GoPay now. They're re-innovating their mainstream business, which is more than just transportation app. You know, they have now financial services as well. So I don't think we should inhibit or limit that spillover effect at all. Because if anything, again, you know, the consumers benefit the most with these competitions. You've mentioned your confidence that the growth of the digital economy will uh, contribute to inclusive growth in Indonesia. I mean, another of the challenges that Indonesia has faced in the development of its economy has been this very low tax to GDP ratio that uh, we see compared to other countries. It's been a a big issue, in fact, in the past two presidential elections. Um, It's obviously the amount of tax that tech companies are paying is clearly of concern to the Indonesian government. We've had the finance minister, Sri Mulyani, uh, speaking of this plan to apply value-added tax to tech companies, regardless of whether they have a physical headquarters in Indonesia. Um, Can I ask you what your views are on those sorts of plans and, uh, you know, exactly how much tax Google is paying in Indonesia for its operations? I can't comment on exactly how much Google is paying taxes in Indonesia, and I certainly cannot comment on how much MNCs have been paying taxes in Indonesia since I truly don't have that data. But as far as international tax reform is concerned, we are very supportive of Indonesian government to continue to work through the OECD and the G20 as the convening platform. And you mentioned about taxes and, and VAT. VAT and physical presence are two different things. One should not mix the definition of the two. VAT or value-added taxes from offshore sellers can be levied without resorting to the issues around permanent establishment. So it's just that the current situation here in Indonesia, the current regulatory framework or the current law prohibits VAT being collected by foreign companies. So there needs to be parliamentary or bill reform in order to accommodate that. But I mean, the sorts of reforms the government is proposing are ultimately aimed at collecting more tax. And, and so you'd have to presume they're motivated by a feeling that the, the Indonesian government is not able to collect sufficient revenue from the operation of the digital economy in Indonesia at present. Um, would that be a fair judgment to make? So tax follows the business models. And so government needs to adapt to these new changes. And also tax is an international reform matter. So again, you know, we encourage the Indonesian government to continue to work and follow through the OECD system for this. Moving on to another of the issues that you've mentioned a few times throughout our discussion today is this issue of hoaxes, of digital literacy. Also, I think, you know, the the idea of increasing social dislocation uh, as people rather than interacting directly, uh, sort of interact in different ways online. Um, How do you see those sorts of issues of divisiveness and dislocation playing out in the internet in Indonesia? And uh, uh, what role do tech companies have to play in addressing those sorts of issues? 
I think if anything, the role of tech companies would actually be um, helping to solve this problem, you know, getting people together. And you mentioned about this issue of dislocation, you know, just because you are far apart doesn't mean um, you cannot meet with each other. And this also brings about to productivity, um, you know, companies can grow and open up new branches and um, teamwork and team efficiency can still go hand in hand with technology because people can collaborate still over the internet and and with technology. So if anything, it actually, again, brings uh, people together. I'd certainly acknowledge that point. And, you know, we see the contribution of messaging platforms and the like in helping people to stay in touch across distances. But we have certainly seen the flip side of that in the sort of polarizing online debates that have happened in the context of elections, in the sort of disinformation and the like. How big an issue is this for Google in Indonesia, I guess, specifically? And and what sort of steps are you taking to address those sort of dynamics? I think with the issue of disinformation or misinformation, it's, it continues to be a challenge here in Indonesia. And, and I think going back to the Ministry of ICT's argument is that people's basic digital literacy is just not there. You know, when you ask people, you know, are you connected to the Internet? And they said no. But when you check their phone, they have Facebook, you know, so just that basic digital literacy 101 is not there. And that's where we need to work together. And you ask about what our role is as a digital company. We are a key stakeholder in this where we need to work together hand in hand with government, uh, with NGOs such as um, checkfacta.com and Anti-Hoax Society in Indonesia. We have a program. It is a consortium of 21 um, editors of local newspapers that when the public flag uh, news that needs to be clarified, these media companies that usually are competing for attention from users actually work together and check whether it's a fact or it's misinformation. You know, so again, collaboration is needed. It takes a village. Now, finally, I mean, at the outset of our conversation today, you mentioned that the point at which the digital economy simply is the economy might be about five years away in Indonesia. Um, How would Indonesia be different to what it is today as a result of that integration happening? Indonesia will continue its leapfrogging trends. Uh, We're confident in that. Mobile phones took off in Indonesia because landlines were expensive and hard to install. Mobile internet also grew tremendously in Indonesia as data prices fall. Same thing as financial technology services. You know, few bank accounts and credit card means more opportunities for uh, fintech solutions such as peer-to-peer lending, mobile payments, and e-wallets. In the next five years, we'll see more and more innovation coming to the fore because of this. And we were talking about this at the Startup Nation International Summit in Surabaya last year. Why is Indonesia a perfect homegrown environment for unicorn? It's because we have a thousand and one challenges already. So we need not to look far to innovate because you can innovate based on your daily challenges, based on people's day-to-day issues. So I think that's why I'm quite confident that Indonesia will continue to see more and more innovation uh, coming from uh, homegrown companies. And then for every economic sector, we'll continue to be digitizing and technology will become an important part of that inclusive growth. But again, to do that, all stakeholders need to partner and play to their strength. Putri, uh, there's a lot more I could ask you, um, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. 
Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for the time. That was Putri Alam, Head of Government Affairs and Public Policy at Google Indonesia. Keep an eye out for the Policy and Focus tagline for future installments of the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia. Policy and Focus series episodes are edited by Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param and appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Don't forget, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or via your favourite podcast app. The next episode of Talking Indonesia will appear on 3 October with my co-host Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.